Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 7. Our passage tonight is Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, please feel free to use the Bible in the pew rack in front of you. You can find our passage tonight on page 943 of the Black Pew Bibles. In Romans chapter 7, and uh, we are beginning in this... uh, uh, we, we just finished a great chapter, and we're, we're beginning a new one that uh, leaves a lot of people intrigued, but we're sort of in a transition in some sense uh, as we see the Apostle Paul explaining, uh, some, uh, explaining some, some important things to some confused people in Romans chapter 7. So let's take a look now to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Thus a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions Aroused by the law, we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from that law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve not under the old written code, but in the new life of the Spirit. As far as the reading of God's Word, would you please pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we, we thank you for your living Word. And I pray that you would make clear in our hearts Not only how we are to view the law, but to know that you have given it to us rightly in Christ, that we may love it because we love you. Help us, Holy Spirit, in this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the the great discouragements of ministry is when uh, you, especially as a pastor, have uh, served and uh, ministered to, to people, and and then after some time, they end up leaving the church. And for some, I've even seen in my time, uh, people leaving the Christian faith altogether. And it's in part out of confusion. A confusion that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. I'll tell you one instance uh, when I was in seminary, I was uh, an intern in my hometown church, and my primary responsibility was working with the youth group. I was the, the Ricky Johnson of the day. Well, anyway, there was uh, one uh, young man who was very bright and, and capable uh, student. His parents taught him well. He was always in the church. Uh, and then the time came for him to graduate from high school, and so he does, and he goes off to college, and after only a couple of weeks, he, he phones up his parents, and then 
uh, He calls me next. And He calls us to tell me, well, He called me to tell me, that He's not a Christian. And that He wanted me to know because He did respect me, so I appreciated that. But He said, you know, Ben, I I simply see Christianity as this bunch of rules. It's it's all these laws and and rules that I have to follow. And and the truth is, I, I want more out of life. I want to explore life outside of that. There's more that I want to see and do. So I, I'm rejecting Christianity. I'm sure some of you have similar experiences. You don't have to be a pastor to know people whom you've loved and pray for who get things confused. And though for this student, his problem was not so much confusion as it was a rebellious heart, but, but still, you know the heartbreak of someone who walks away. Someone who may know a lot about the Bible and yet never truly grasp the grace of God in Jesus Christ and misunderstands the role of the law in the life of the believer. And that's the question, really, in tonight's passage that's raised here, is what is my relationship as a Christian? What is my relationship with the law? What role does God's law have in my life as a believer? There are some who you may meet, and maybe this is you, who think that God's law is everything. From beginning to end, and, and, and it's, it's there to, to control everything. And that keeping God's law is everything. That's the sum total of God's, of, of Christianity, of the Christian life. But then there are others that you will meet. Maybe you are here tonight who think that God's law really has nothing to do with my life anymore. Grace. I've, I've come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so the law of God, it, it, it doesn't have any bearing upon my life anymore. And so there's, there's confusion. What is my relationship as a Christian to God's law? This law, which Romans chapter 7 and verse 12 says, is holy and righteous and good. And that's what our passage tonight, the Apostle Paul in verses 1 through 6, is is answering that question. What is your relationship, believer, to the law of God? And really, he's he's continuing. It's an extension of what he's already talked about in chapter 6, verse 14. And go back there and you can see, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. A couple weeks ago when we looked at that, what do you make of that verse? Not under law, I'm, I'm under grace. Sin is not my master anymore because I am under grace. What do you make of that? How do you understand that and apply that in your life? Now, Paul comes back to that question in verse 1 by asking a question. Do you not know, brothers, Interesting. It's a, it's a rebuke, isn't it? The Apostle Paul is rebuking his reader. What does it mean that I'm not under law, but under grace? 
Do you not know, brothers? He's saying this is something that we shouldn't be confused about. We shouldn't misunderstand. We shouldn't use it or be able to use it as a, as a cover for my rebellious heart. But, but too often for many of us, isn't that a problem? That we are confused or that we don't know things that we ought to know. My prayer for tonight is that this, by considering this passage, we might have a little bit less confusion in how we live out our Christian lives. And I'm going to follow Paul's argument here in three points. The first, he gives a rebuke in verse 1. And then in verses 2 and 3, he, he continues to explain himself with an illustration. And then in verses 4 through 6, he takes that illustration and then he gives an application. So those are three points, a rebuke, an illustration, and an application. So verse 1, we look at Paul's rebuke. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. You might read this and say, well, Paul's not not rebuking me here. I don't really know the law. I mean, surely he's speaking about uh, those uh, those people who grew up in, in Jewish homes and, and with the Jewish background and who studied the law uh, in great detail. I, you know, I don't have a Jewish background. But actually, I, I think Paul here is speaking to the church as a whole. He's speaking both to Jewish converts and, and Gentile converts together. And whatever their background may be, All of these people, even if you grew up an utter pagan, and you come into the church, and you've been in the church for a while, you should be learning uh, the Word of God. And, And the ones he's addressing here, they would have come to know the law of God. Much like you and I, as members in a Bible preaching, Bible believing church today, we ought to know God's law. And so his rebuke, do you not know, brothers? I think it's an appropriate question and rebuke for the whole church, including us. And if we're honest with ourselves, we we all do need a well-placed, well-timed rebuke sometimes, don't we? We need those people who really love us to, to tell you, Ben, Don't you know what God's Word says? Someone who will stop us and cause us to consider whether or not I'm actually paying any attention to God's Word at all. Sometimes we not only need the rebuke, and many of us are happy to rebuke others, but thankfully Paul here not only gives the rebuke because he does love the church here in Rome, but he's also a pastor and he has a pastor's heart and he, and he sits down and he takes us by the hand and he teaches us. He doesn't just mock them. Don't you know? You should already know the answer to this. There shouldn't be any confusion about law and grace and how you are to live and so on. But rather he, he teaches us so that we can understand rightly how those who are in Christ, how we are supposed to relate to God's law. And so in verses 2 and 3, he gives an illustration to help us understand. Look at verses 2 and 3. It says this, 
Thus, a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. So, the Apostle Paul has made his rebuke. And at the end of verse 1, he says that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. And he says, let me give you an illustration to help you understand. And he, and he gives this illustration of a married couple. And we all know that if you're married, uh, it's not okay for you uh, to go and move out and move in with somebody else when you're married to another person. But... If your husband or if your wife dies, you're no longer obligated to that marriage. You're free to marry again. It's a simple point, really, that Paul is making, that that death ends all former relationships. Death ends all former relationships. It ends all of your obligations. Some of you who are in high school are probably having to read uh, Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn. Those of you may remember having to read that in your high school years. And you might remember this uh, scene where uh, the main character, Huck Finn, he's a boy. He, he fakes his own death. Why does he fake his own death? Well, it's because he wants to escape his father. He wants to be done with that relationship. And, and even as a boy... He knows that if he dies, or at least if his father believes that he dies, then his father is not going to have any more power or authority over him. That relationship will be over. We understand that. And and Paul is using the picture of marriage to get this point across. A marriage is binding only when both parties are alive. When one person dies in a marriage, That marriage has ended, and the living spouse is free to marry another person. But as long as a woman's husband is alive, she's bound to him. But if he has died, she's released from the law of that marriage. Because death ends all prior relationships. That's the illustration Paul gives. Now, before you start spending too much time thinking about your own marriages here, and um, he's really trying to make a, a point, not about marriage so much, but again, about our relationship to God's law. And so he makes this application. He gives a point that we need to take away so that we can live our lives in an appropriately God-honoring way. And then verses 4 through 6, he explains this. He makes the application. And really, we're going to come to the key verse, and most of our time now is going to be in verse 4. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, Likewise, remember we have the illustration of the marriage. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Sometimes you can sit down with a verse in the Bible and spend quite a bit of time trying to 
unpack it and understand uh, what it is saying. And sometimes it's helpful to understand first what it is not saying. I want us to do that now. What is Paul not saying in this verse? First of all, Paul is not saying that we were once bound to the law, but now Christ has come and the law has died, therefore making the law irrelevant to the Christian life. Paul is not saying that the law has died, that the law is irrelevant to the Christian life. And we need to be reminded of that, don't we? That Jesus did not come in order to make the law of God irrelevant. In fact, what you know, we think about the, the new covenant promises. One of the great promises of the new covenant is, is not that the law of God is going to be completely done away with, but actually that the law of God is going to be written on your hearts. The law of God is going to be written onto the hearts of God's people. And you look at the scope of the Bible and you look in the, the old covenant and you see there's a sense in which the law is sort of outside of everyone. But in the new covenant, it is put inside of God's people. And so when you consider the law of God for the Christian, the law actually becomes more relevant. And that it being written onto your heart teaches us that God's holy, good, and righteous law is actually essential. It is essential to the Christian life. It is essential to who we are as Christians because God has written His law on the hearts of His people. So God is not saying, I mean, sorry, Paul is not saying that, that Jesus has, uh, that the law has died, that the law is irrelevant, that the law is no more with the coming of Christ. Secondly, Paul does not say that the law has died, but he has, he has also said um, that you have died to the law. It's not that the law dies, it doesn't die. But actually, contrary to what we think, the believer dies to the law. So in verses 1-3, through three, Paul is making this point that where there's death, all prior obligations, relationships are over. And now in verse 4, Paul is saying, well, actually, so you know, there has been a death. Someone has died. We've looked at this in Romans 6. It spends quite some time on facts. Facts, not telling us what to do, but facts. Reality that happens in the work of Christ. That when you believe in Jesus Christ, when you become a believer, when you're converted in Him, you died to Christ. You have died to Christ. We've talked about that before. We've seen that before. And you still might say, well, I'm sitting here, Ben. I'm sitting in these pews and I'm breathing and I'm, maybe I'm not as young as I used to be, but I'm, I'm alive, aren't I? So what is... What death, then, is Paul talking about? Paul tells us he's talking about the death of Jesus Christ. Let's go back to verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you, not the law, you also died to the law through the body of Christ. 
One of the things the Apostle Paul does is he sometimes will pack a a lot of theology in, in really tight spaces. You may wonder, well, how do we die? How do we die to the law through the body of Christ? Well, Romans 5 and Romans 6 has told us already when Jesus died on the cross, His death was not private, was it? It was not personal either. He was, when He died on the cross, He died as the representative head of God's people. He died as the substitute of God's people. That's what Romans 5 teaches us. And in Jesus' death, all believers have died. In Jesus' death, all believers have died. That's what Romans 6 teaches us. Christ is the head and we are the body. The death of the head is the death of the body. And so, in our place, our Lord Jesus Christ died our death and in Himself fulfills the law's holy, righteous, and good commands For us. We have died through Jesus Christ. Now what are the demands of the law that Jesus fulfills? The first is that we fulfill, do, all righteousness. It's the first demand. And the second demand is that we pay for when we break the law. The thing is, We cannot do the first, and we cannot pay the second. We cannot fulfill all righteousness, nor are we able to pay the price for our sins. But when we're united to Jesus Christ, He becomes our our covenant head. We can know that He has fulfilled all righteousness for us, and He has paid in full that which you and I cannot afford to pay. He has died the death that the law requires for sin. And He provides the righteousness as the covenant head of His people. And so Paul says in verse 4, You have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to Him who has been raised from the dead. Because of our union with Christ, We no longer belong to the law. We belong to another. The the law no longer has any claim over you. All the demands that it makes. Jesus has satisfied every possible demand that God's law can make. So this brings us back now to the original question. What place does the law have in the Christian's life? And what I want us to see, for the Christian, the one who has come to Jesus Christ, who has fulfilled everything that the law requires, and has paid the price for your sin, the law then takes a place that it always was supposed to have. What is that? Psalm 119, the psalmist says this, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How I love your law. 
Do you love the law of God? You know, it's the place in the Christian's heart that Jesus talks about. When he instructs his disciples, he tells them, If you love me, you will keep my commands. The place of the law in the believer is in his renewed heart. And again, the law is holy and good and righteous. It reflects the holiness and the goodness and the righteousness of God. And out of the the love for the God who has saved you, then of course the law is going to become your delight. What is your delight? Vacation? Golf? Pickleball? The law of God? If If you're a Christian and you don't delight... And the moral law of God. Why don't you? Why not? The law is not your master anymore. Jesus is your master. And we actually begin to see that God's moral law shows us exactly the kind of God who has loved you. Who has rescued you through Jesus Christ from condemnation that you deserve. When you get married, it's, it's a, it, funny things happen to you when you're married. In particular, your affections begin to change. You may not notice it at first. I, for example, as a single man, I never sat down and watched Anne of Green Gables. <laughs> but I have as a married man. Because my wife enjoys it. And you know what? I, I like it too. I'm going to say that from the pulpit. In a similar way, we keep God's law out of love for Him. For He who died, who loved you first, who has taken you out of of, of the master of death and brought you into the kingdom of Christ. You belong to Him who died as your substitute on the cross, and then He rose from the grave. And when we look at the resurrection of Jesus, what do we see? We see proof that He has fulfilled all righteousness. And you know what else? When you come to Jesus Christ, yes, He is our Master, but what does He tell us? He says, My yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so we can say with the Apostle John, the commands of Christ are not burdensome for the one who has been loved by him. Anne of Green Gables is not burdensome for me. The law of God is not burdensome for the believer in Christ. Well, we're still in verse 4 and it just keeps going. Why has the Christian died to the law? So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. So why have Christians died to the law? Verse 4 tells us we have died to the law in order that we might bear fruit for God. 
Jesus unites us to Himself. We're united to Christ in our salvation. And in our union with Christ, we are to reflect the likeness of Christ into this world. You know, as long as we are married to the law, verse 5 tells us everything we produce will be rotten. Verse 5 tells us that the fruit of the heart of those who are under master law, the fruit is death. But the one who has been rescued from sin's dominion, who has been brought into the the ownership and, and the love of God in Jesus Christ, that person will produce fruit that honors God. Verse 5 tells us unbelievers produce death. Verse 6 tells us the life of the believer is new life in the Holy Spirit. And it will, by its nature, because of the root that has been uh, given to you, a new heart, you will produce fruit that honors God. That's just how it is. Those are just facts. Because the way a person lives his life It reveals who your master really is. How do you look at God's law? What do you think about when you think about the Ten Commandments? Do you see a a list of the things that I cannot do and I hate it because I want to do all those other things? Has God just given me a bunch of restrictions upon my life just because he's, He's mean and strict? If that's your view, either you're going to be crushed in the end because you, you're going to try, like running on a treadmill, you're going to try and try and try to fulfill the law's demands, and you just can't. And the weight of the law will crush you. Or you will abandon the church altogether and say, I'm just not going to do this. Romans 3.20 tells us that by works of the law, no one will be justified. The good news is that if you're a Christian, you're not a slave to the law anymore. That's not how you see the law. The problem is we can forget that sometimes. And we can get a bit confused about it. And we need reminders to remember who it is you belong to. Remember, you belong to the one who has fulfilled every demand of God's law. And the one who has fulfilled the righteous demands of the law, he shows you his heart. Do you love Jesus? Then keep his commands. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you for loving us in such a way that not only do you redeem us and save us, but you make us more like yourself. Help us to be like the psalmist and say, oh, how I love your law, oh God. It's my meditation day and night. Help us to see that we are loved by you and that you fulfill, O Christ, every demand that the law makes. Now coming under 
your headship. Lord, I pray that you would draw our loves, our affections to be nearer to you. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.